everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where a bunch of writers sit around drinking coffee or wine and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 111, Interview with Stephen Murray. 11-T-1. Actually, I think this is a very auspicious number, isn't it? 111? It's, it's a very inauspicious number if you're English. Um, 111 is um, Nelson. Um, don't ask me why 111 is Nelson, because it's rude. Um, but... <laughs> I don't think you can get away without explaining about it now. Sorry. Oh, come on. He had one arm, one eye, and one of something else. Um, Sailor visiting the optometrist? Yes, dear. Um, But in in English cricket, cricket is is a game that is riddled with superstitions. Um, And in English cricket, 111 is a number of bad omen. Batsmen get out on 111 much more often than they do on 110 or 112. Um, teams get out for 111 in total, and, and multiples thereof, 222, 333, and so forth. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it saturates um, English cricket history with a tale of woe. Um, so there is, I, I can't actually remember what you're supposed to do to avert it. Um, something like standing on one leg, perhaps. <laughs> well, let's, well, let's check in. I mean, Stephen Murray, you're, you're originally from South Africa, correct? And then by way of England in Vegas? Well, no, I was originally born in England. Um, but as a young child, uh, the family moved to Southern Africa back then. And we moved to what was then Southern Rhodesia. It's now Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Um, and we moved down to a little country called Pasutaland. It's now Lesotho. Mm-hmm. And I went to boarding school in South Africa. And then I went back to live in England and then came to California, Southern California. And 18 years ago, moved to Las Vegas. So, <laughs> yes, so, it's been quite a around the world. So do you have any emotional superstition on uh, epi- uh, episode 111 or shall I call it 11X? Or what, what would you prefer? <laughs> No, uh, I hate to say it, being born English, but I have no interest in cricket at all. I, sorry, Chad, it's, I just find it very boring, and to watch games for five no! and in the draw, <laughs> sorry. Um, I tend to prefer ice hockey and um, baseball. I was a Dodger season ticket holder for about 15 years. Okay, so. Jeannie, will, Jeannie will now spend the next 10 minutes talking with you about hockey. I will not. I will merely say that the Vegas Golden Knights are a perfectly fine team. Their practice facility is magnificent, and I like their locker rooms. <laughs> Very well said. But we will call this episode Nelson all the same just for Thank fun. You. Sure. Thank you. For Chaz's sake. For Chaz's sake. Stephen, you have written and you have gotten into self-publishing and you took an interesting path. I was reading that your first two books are The Chapel of Eternal Love and Return to the Chapel of Eternal Love, which seem to be not romance novels so much as love stories. Tell us about them. Yes, you're correct, Jeannie. There are love stories. And um, I have to tell you, when I first started to write, I decided to write about my travels throughout the world because I've, I've traveled to so many countries. But I didn't know how to publish it. I went to a, a club that would help me 
published and the speaker that night was a publisher and she just mentioned that unless you're writing for women, forget it. You know, women are the ones with the money and the women are the ones that read. And I was totally green, a total novice, hadn't, didn't know any authors, never met any. And I thought, well, I'm going to have a stab at that. You know, I discovered this joy of writing and stumbled across the idea of writing about a fictional Las Vegas wedding chapel. I mean, after all, we are the marriage capital of the world here in Las Vegas. And True. I thought, you know what, it would be fun to write about a book about why couples come here. You know, well, why are we the marriage capital of the world? What, what motivates people to give up the idea of a big glamorous wedding that's, you know, with all the champagne and family and friends and big hoopla and come have a quiet secluded wedding in Las Vegas. And I thought, you know, that's going to be a challenging exercise. And it certainly was. Um, I knew nothing about women's fiction. I've never even been married. So um, it was definitely a challenge. But it is really a series of stories about why people fall in love. I mean, it's not a one size fits all. It's, it means different things to different people. So there's, they're all different stories. Um, the reader spends a day at this fictional wedding chapel, and you meet the couples as they come and go, and they've all got different backgrounds, and some of the chapters are heartwarming, a couple are heartbreaking, and some are humorous. But all the stories are linked together by the wedding organizer, Rosemary, that turns it into a novel. And her little dog, too. Yeah, and the little dog bus, <laughs> absolutely, yes. And, um, you know, even when it was finished, I didn't intend to publish it. I just thought, well, that was a fun exercise and opportunity, and I went on to write a murder mystery. And then when I went to get that published, they said, oh, no, you've got to get your chapel book published. And I thought, shucks. I didn't even have a title for it at that time, but um, we came up with a title and the cover and got it published, and, much to my very pleasant surprise, even though it's fiction, people wanted to know what happened to the couples after they left the altar. <laughs> so the second book was um, a sequel. It takes place five years down the road and revisits all the couples from the first book and uh, oh, where yeah, their yeah. life journey took them. And that was really a challenge because I never planned on there being a sequel and I then had to sort of suddenly come up with all these follow-up stories. And um, so it, it's, it was a fun exercise and... I've just been very humbled and pleased at the response it's gotten. And it's now eight years down the road, and I'm still going out talking about it and selling books on it. So it's been a, a fun journey. I, I think there is a perfect audience right now for this. I mean, there was a fairly good hit TV show and the New York based on the New York Times column, Modern Love. And it reminded me of that a little bit of the a single connection, you know, thread that wanders through the city of New York and all these love stories going around it. So the idea is very similar in a Vegas kind of way of here's all the stories. And to a certain extent, because they're love stories rather than romance, traditional, I think that opens it up a little bit to you don't always have perfect happy endings in a love story, the way that Romance novels, by definition, require a happy ending, right? Oh, well, you're, you're absolutely correct. And I didn't, I did want to make it where the reader does go on an emotional roller coaster. And so sometimes the, the more sadder chapters, if you will, or heartbreaking chapters, they tend to be followed by just a fun 
chapter like an Elvis wedding where there's some humor in it to lighten it up. So the reader does get to run the gamut of emotions. And I think what makes this a little bit interesting is Las Vegas is known as Sin City. And we're also the marriage capital of the world. And it's an odd dichotomy when you think about it. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> I have... I have because my ice hockey team plays a tournament in Vegas every year. I love walking <laughs> along the strip. <laughs> you know, the oh. <laughs> here's, here's the thousands of people flicking their cards at you for, you know, have a lovely evening in your hotel room versus I've also attended two friends' weddings at Elvis chapels and <laughs> driving to Elvis, you know. We saw, we saw the movie The Bachelor Party the night before one of those weddings, and I had a friend that looked at me and like, no tigers. <laughs> I was I was honored and touched that he accepted my ability to find Las Vegas Tigers and involve them in the wedding. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Because well, I believe in me too, so it was possible. Uh-huh. <laughs> and anything does go in Las Vegas, that's for sure. It's true. So it sounds like you didn't really have a formula for these in the way that romance follows a formula. Is there any formula to the first two books that way? Um not really, Jeannie. How it came about, um, I was looking for something to write about for, for women to, you know, follow the publisher's advice. And I had a client visiting from Belgium and the, the client's girlfriend wanted to go to a wedding chapel. And we just started talking to this couple that was waiting to get married. And I thought, what, why, why are they here? Where are all their friends and family? And when I was driving home that night, all these thoughts were going through my mind. And I suddenly thought, hey, there's my book. And it sounds silly, but by the time I got home, all of the chapters were in my mind, all of the outlines for the story. And I got home and I went straight to the computer and just quickly put the outlines before they went out of my mind. So I never really deviated from the outlines of the stories. Now, I do have to say I had help. I joined a critique group, and there were just two gentlemen and a lady. And within a month, it was just me and four ladies. <laughs> they were just tremendous helping out because... Um, I, I was actually going to ask whether you had a reading group or beta readers and, and how you worked with them. So tell us more about your, your reading and having people read and the feedback. How did that work? Well, when I joined the group, again, I was, I was so green, I didn't even know what a writer's critique was. That just shows how naive I was. So they, they told me what the formula was, that you have to bring something every two weeks, and it has to be written out, and you have to have copies for everybody. And you read your piece, and they follow, and they do little grammar corrections and spelling corrections. What was interesting for me is um, I had no idea the extent to which I think men and women are wired differently. Um, I learned so much from these poor ladies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, it's a fine, it, fine thing. And yes, nothing wrong with it. It's, it's yeah. just how it is. And I did not realize the extent to which we thought and process thoughts differently. And I think years ago, there was a book out called Men Are From Mars and Women From Venus or something yes. like that. It's exactly and, I think that is so true, and the women were very good. They were very kind, very helpful, and very supportive. And, the, you know, we're now eight years down the road, 
10 years down the road, actually, and we're still all together in the same critique group. So we've been through all kinds of books with each other. And they were just very supportive and helpful. And they said, you know, if you're writing for women, you need to describe the wedding dress and the, the, flow, the bouquet and things like that. And I was saying, why? Who cares? You know, that's not what the story is about. <laughs> yes, but if you're writing for women, we want to know these things. We like to see these things. And I just shake my head and um, back to the drawing board. And <laughs> but it's all good. I learned a lot. It was it was fun. And the extent that uh, uh, there's been success with the books, I do have to say those, the four women in the group, um, I have to take a lot of credit for how can we get it out there? And I, I think it good on you for accepting that sort of input because it is, as a girl reading many books that are written from a female point of view by a guy, I've, I've, I had one that I came back and said, I, I, here's my set of disbeliefs. One, I don't believe this is actually a female because you did this and that is just not what any girl I know would do. <laughs> and he said, well, this is a lesbian. I'm like, secondly, I don't believe she's a lesbian. I think oh. <laughs> wants to. <laughs> this is, oh, I, again, I play hockey. So, you know, quarter of the league are lesbian. And this is not how lesbians flirt. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I think from the flip side, to even up the score a little bit, um, you know, the, uh, the ladies in the group, they're writing books that involve men and, uh, I like to think that I have helped them square away a couple of things there where I said, I don't know of any man that would do this. None That's, whatsoever. It's yeah, just, it's hugely important. It's, yeah. it's, it's always interested and, and a little bit niggled me. When, when, I, was, when I was a baby writer, um, way, way back, um, I, I too wrote romance. Um, that's, that's how I started my career as a, as a, as a teenage romance writer. Um, and it was absolutely current among the writerly circles that I knew to believe that men couldn't write convincing women. And at the same time, there was no suggestion that women couldn't write convincing men. Um, it was just, yeah, these, these were two things just taken as truth. And um, it was annoying. No, it's... I first time I was writing a long moving a novel into a male point of view, I had to go to different male friends and say, okay, do you believe this is a guy? Do you think these emotional reactions are accurate and in proportion? And one of the criticisms I had was, Jeannie, we look at people in more detail than you do. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> like, yep, a guy will notice head to toe what somebody looks like. You know, are they threat? You know, if they're if they're hetero, and so I got the whole long litany that they gave me of how men look at people that they run into, whereas women don't size people up for are they a threat? So we don't immediately compare ourselves against them. We don't, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's fascinating and it's worthy to do. So good on you for your group together and doing that. Well, it, it's certainly tough. There's there's no question about it, and. It, especially when you're writing about the, the female characters, I was beginning to feel like Sybil, you know, that, that <laughs> lady or that girl with all those multiple personalities because trying to develop the characters and you, you've got to dig deep, in, uh, deep inside to find that emotion within yourself. Well, or at least you know, empathy. You know? Yes. 
the empathy and compassion for somebody that isn't you. And you wrote from different perspectives through all of this. I mean, moving into your second book, the uh, I believe you wrote the Murder Aboard the QE2 second. Oh, yes, that was written, but it was published third because um, yes. that was the one I took to get published. But they said, no, you've got to come up with a sequel now. So I dropped that and you know, totally <laughs> put together the sequel. Um, but yes, the, then I, after the return to the chapter of Eternal Love was published, then the murder of Boyle, the Queen Elizabeth II came out. Yes, And I, I read it because I try to read something of everybody's. And I want you to know that right up front, I hated all the men in it. So it was very, very easy for me to empathize oh. with their motives for killing each other. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved that it had a clear interrelation and a very Orient Express type feel, which was neat. But yeah. I, also, I also found, had you seen, read or seen Knives Out? No, I haven't. Must confess I haven't. Okay, Chaz had told me he hadn't seen it. You both he missed, immediately must go out and watch Knives Out because similar to that, they are both a classist struggle of dealing with people that consider themselves at different class levels interacting with each other. You have um, old money, older generation looking down on younger generation, the more bohemian set. And I thought there was, it made an interesting comparison to so if somebody liked Knives Out, they would probably love your murder on the uh, Queen Elizabeth. Um, I've made a note of that, Jeannie, and I've <laughs> definitely got to go and check it out now. But <laughs> but it's it's more of a tea cozy mystery um, than this one in particular, because each chapter involves conversation and learning more and deeper about the interrelation of all these people, which that was what took me down the Orient Express idea. Well, um I tried to do something slightly different. It, it seems to me that most murder mysteries, we know who has committed the murder within the first couple of chapters, or we know who's been murdered in the first yeah. couple of chapters, I should say. And in this one, I wanted to try something different. I wanted to try and develop all the characters first yeah. and make it a kind of twofer, if you will, that by demonstrating that they all had their motives really for killing each other. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. It would create some intrigue into, you know, okay, which one of these people is actually going to get murdered? So that's why the murder only takes place like halfway through. And so I hope there was some intrigue in figuring out who's going to be murdered. And then, of course, once the person is murdered, okay, now comes the second Oh, you know. and, and that was perfect for the way you set it up and like here's a bunch of, of fairly disagreeable men and figuring out so who's going to get it i mean was it going to be the wife was it going to be the husband was it going to be the ex-partner that was fun and i liked the delayed death <laughs> <laughs> well and not, not all of the women had very savory characters either to be no fair. that is true i i didn't like <laughs> sylvie or brian so <laughs> Jeannie, you said you said earlier this was like a tea cozy mystery. How do you how do you define that as against a cozy? Well, I don't think I'd really thought of it. Tea, maybe a cocktail cozy mystery instead. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm thinking you know tea cozy. Everybody orders you know it's it's solved over tea. And this one, there was a lot of cocktails that flowed by, which I. <laughs> I loved that. And it was, oh, I've ordered a cocktail. But what instead I have is a detective and captain showing up at my cabin. So, 
<laughs> so I don't know if this cocktail cozy is a thing or not, but I think it should be. We can make it so. Excellent. It's a wonderful cocktail cozy mystery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can put that on the cover of the next edition. There you go. <laughs> I do define it as a cozy, cozy mystery. Um, I must confess, I've never even heard of the term cozy mystery. And to this day, when I go out and give presentations and I talk about it being a cozy murder mystery, a lot of people will put their hands up and say, how can you have a cozy murder mystery? Murder <laughs> mystery is anything but cozy. But well, it's, it is a cozy murder mystery because, you know, there's no graphic gory details. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's a man quietly dies at the dinner table. The fr my first dead body that I ever saw was at a dinner table. So, you know, really, it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you found it an intriguing read. I, I did. I enjoyed it. Good. And then your third book then, I guess fourth book now, is more of a thriller. It's a little bit more violent, a little bit more work revenge out of an escort agency, again, in Las Vegas. I love that you're centering it all in a place that everybody loves to go. <laughs> Tell us about well, Discreetly Yours. The, Discreetly Yours really came about, um, and I have to tell you, yes, you're right. It is about three ladies that work for an exclusive escort agency in Las Vegas. It's not any old escort agency. They are very... Uh, sophisticated, elegant, beautiful, and smart, and very well-versed. Uh, but the guy that runs the agency, agency, he truly is a crumb. And they decide to come up with a perfect crime to get rid of him. So we know at the outset who's going to get killed. And you stay with them as they plot and connive and plan and scheme to come up with a perfect crime to get rid of this guy. And... Um, I have to tell you right up front, there was no research done on this book. <laughs> oh, come on. I was hoping for a really saucy story. No, I hate to, I hate to uh, disillusion you, Jeannie, but no, it's just pure imagination, pure fiction and pure imagination. Mm. And the idea actually came from the chapel, the first chapel book I wrote. Um, and I'm, I'm going to give away one of the stories, but... In the first chapter book, there was an escort, and she made the mistake of falling in love with one of her clients. And, of course, he's not going to get divorced because he's got a wife and he's got kids going through school and he wants to wait and see them through college and so on and so forth. And the escort's name was Emmy. And I wanted to paint her in a sympathetic light because I didn't necessarily want the female or a reader to hate her. So I thought, oh, you know what? This guy's going to get divorced from Emmy and they're going to get married. And she pitches up at the altar and she's got a little bouquet and she's waiting for him. And of course, he stands her up. And I thought maybe that will put her in a sympathetic light. And I have to tell you, I was amazed at the number of emails I got. What happened to Emmy? You didn't explain what happened to Emmy. Where did her life take her? And I was just amazed at the sympathy that Emmy got. So I thought, you know, when I came to writing my the Discreetly Yours, I thought, you know, I want to take this one step further. Let me take three escorts and they don't get stood up, but they actually murder somebody. Are they going to invoke the same amount of sympathy that Emmy got 
are they going to appeal for the three females or are they going to say, gosh, these ladies actually murdered somebody. They deserve to, you know, go to prison, sentenced to death, whatever the crime is. And um, so that's how I wrote the book. Uh, but I didn't come up with any solutions per se. I allow the reader to determine themselves whether they should get away with it. And so there's so many twists and turns you don't really know until the last chapter. And I like to wonder whether the reader's rooting for them to get away. And there's so many twists and turns. In one chapter, you think they're getting away with it. And then the next chapter, it's like there's some little thing that's cropped up that could potentially bring the whole lot crashing down. And it just twists and turns until the final chapter. Okay, I love this. This, this is this is, sounds like a like a heist movie, except it's a murder movie. Well, it's it's caper in its own way. And yeah, absolutely. We exactly. briefly talked on the difference between uh, uh, mystery novels that are all from kind of from the side of law and order of finding out the truth so that justice can be done, and yet capers, on the other hand, are rather the opposite. They are on the other side of not law, but perhaps through more justice than law. So if one is law and the other is justice, did these three girls find justice? Well, when I sign books, Jean, that's kind of what I put in the front and say, was <laughs> justice served? You be the judge. You know, it's, up to, it's up to everybody's opinion yep. um, whether justice is served. And um, quite a lot of people have email as they're reading the book <laughs> and said i don't know how this is going to end and some of them have said but these women better get away with it that guy deserves <laughs> everything he got yeah. and some others have written and said i hope you haven't allowed these girls to get away with it you know <laughs> they kill somebody no matter what so you know it's up to each person to find their own it's true what's what's your next project what are you working on right now um, I want to try something totally different. Discreetly Yours came out in July of 2019. And just as it came out, I happened to be watching a Hallmark movie, Christmas in July. <laughs> I thought, you know what? I think I've had enough of murder and mayhem <laughs> and, you know, the seedy side of life. And I thought, I want to have a stab at something totally different. So I've been writing a Christmas novella and I've just finished it. It's in for editing. But it is you know, mostly mushy and gooey and warm and fuzzy. And Excellent. it's all good. And it's just something totally different. And the critique group seemed to enjoy it. And they said it's kind of what we all need right now with <laughs> the way things are in the world and the way yeah, so we are with each other. So so what, what is your editorial process? I mean, once, once you've written the first draft, what, what happens next? Well, I, I, um, obviously, I, I have my critique group. Yeah, and you take I have, uh, but once we've gone beyond the critique group, and yeah. I have a few others, you know, people in England and my sister in South Africa that, you know, I send the chapters to so that I'm getting totally different points of view and perspectives and things like that. But once it's all done, yes, I then send it to um, an editor that I have, and she edits it, and, you know, she comes back with her, suggested changes and some of them I accept some of them I don't but I accept most of them because that's their job but um that's the one of the joys of self-publishing though is that you get to call the final shots and um 
you, you get the final say on the cover design and the final say on the editing and the whole shebang. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so talk, talk about the covers for a minute. How, how do you get your covers? Well, the, um, there was the company that helped me publish the first two books. They had somebody on board okay. um, that actually does book covers. Yep. And I sat down with the owner of the company and the cover designer. And at the time, because I had planned on the chapel of eternal love being published, I didn't even have a title for the book. So we had to sit down and come up with a title. And they then said, what would you like the cover to be like? And um, so we had a couple of discussions on that. And then when it came to Murder Aboard the Queen Elizabeth II, you know, it was the same company that helped design the cover. And we sat down and had a discussion and, they sent me three or four different designs. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, that goes through my critique group to say, what do you think of this? And, you know, <laughs> so on and so forth. And the last one, I went with um, somebody different, the lady that designed my website, but discreetly yours. Um, she also designs book covers. And um, she came up with four or five different designs. And we kind of settled on the current one. But, you know, just tweaked a little bit and said, you know, we need to change the colors with the hair and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth and make, make the Las Vegas skyline a little bit more of a contrast so that people can see that it's Las Vegas, if they're familiar with Las Vegas. And, but it's, um, I rely heavily on the people whose business it is to do these things. I, I do go to them, their opinions and I try and take most of what they recommend. And sometimes I dig my heels in. I think we all tend to be a little bit like that, protective, and we want certain things to stay as they are, as we imagine them to be. But it's all worked out well. Absolutely. And uh, we look forward to, are you, you know, you're looking at a novella? Are you thinking, boy, wouldn't it be cool if this was a screenplay one day? Oh, Jeannie, since <laughs> day one, that has, <laughs> I think that's, um, so many people have said, that the chapel books would make a beautiful TV miniseries. And a lot of them have said, you know, Murder Aboard the QE2 would make a great um, TV murder mystery. Um, and even Discreetly Yours, I think one of the, it was either Reader's Favourite or the Self-Publisher's Digest competition. One of them said this would make a riveting TV movie. Um but how does one get there? You know, I keep going on podcasts and chat shows and presentations. And uh, I even do book signings at Hallmark, hoping that somebody will pick it up or notice it. But no such luck so far. But absolutely, I dream on. But if it doesn't happen, you know, it's not the end of the world. It would be nice. It would be icing on the cake. But well, I was I was thinking more of picking up a book on writing screenplays and try doing your own translation and shipping it around. Oh. I mean, I, yeah, no, it's, it's a good thought. I, I just don't know whether, um, I don't know whether my talents lie in that direction. Uh, yes, it, it's, it's something to think about, I suppose. Um, yeah. Certainly something to think about. I adore having the idea of like, once you've started writing, I love that you're going to new places. And so I always encourage every medium. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I do, I do like writing um, in different genres. Exactly. And I have, well, I wouldn't have done a screenplay writing, but a very close friend of mine, in fact, one of the ladies in our critique group, um, she was diagnosed a few years ago with um, 
early onset Alzheimer's. And we did a couple of fundraisers. I don't know whether you both are familiar with that. They love letters by A.R. Gurney. No, not personally, but. Okay. It's we'll about two. It's send a me a link and we'll put it into the podcast links. Okay. It's um, love letters that are played for two, two people. And all they do is they sit alongside each other and they start writing to each other in junior school and they keep this correspondence up for 50 odd years and their life goes in different directions and they they keep hooking up and it's kind of humorous and it's fun and it's warm and fuzzy and heartbreaking it's got the whole shebang and it's it's been done by all kinds of famous people it's well it's really a conduit for for well-known people to go and produce it Mm -hmm. and put it on and we did it as fundraiser a couple of times to raise money for alzheimer's and then nancy my friend was early onset Alzheimer's, she suggested we could write a play along the same lines. One was early onset Alzheimer's and the other guy is a caregiver. And so we have done that as I've been writing my Christmas movie. And um, we were childhood sweethearts and senior prom school king and queen. And our lives went different paths. And then, you know, 40 years later, we hook up and we reconnect our friendship and then she starts talking about her troubles with dementia and Alzheimer's and he has a family member that's got Alzheimer's and he has to become a caregiver. So have written something of a play and so I guess that's I could sort of bounce off of that. Absolutely. <laughs> and oh. try screenplay. I should probably go to a class and screenplay. That's, that's Absolutely. They have a lot of them online. Yes. And uh, Kat Rambod has hosts a bunch of them with professional screenwriters. So and we'll put a link to Kat Rambo's site as well. Yeah, I will absolutely do that. We will put links to all Stephen's stories and books and the interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Stephen, if somebody has a question or further information, can they just reach straight out to you? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Wonderful. Um, I answer any emails that come through. They can write to me at Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at Cassandras.net, C-A-S-A-N-D-R-A-S.net. Perfect. I try and answer all emails within 24 hours. Um, <laughs> otherwise, they get out of hand. And, um, and thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope your listeners enjoy the podcast as much as I enjoy being your guest. Oh, I wish you both much success and happiness, and especially with your one 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 chance. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs, enabling you all to rush out and buy cool WDC swag. And hey, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.